Ever wonder what happens to all that stuff on America's favourite antique show once the cameras leave town? Go behind the scenes as season five of Detours dives into the dirt behind curious treasures found on the show. Join Adam Monaghan, host and longtime producer for GBH's Antiques Roadshow, as he reveals more never-before-told stories of fakes, fumbles and unforgettable moments. Listen to Detours now, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's not easy uh, to make change and that in the process you get a lot of pushbacks, a lot of criticisms, and you have to put up that shield to say, no matter what you do, you're not going to stop me, you're not going to get in my way. You know, I know what my path is and I'm going to continue it. Welcome to Portraits. I'm Kim Sayet, the director of the National Portrait Gallery. This season, we're telling stories of resistance and resilience. When you decide to become a warrior, you can expect that you're going to have a lot of arrows that are going to be slung at you. That's my guest today, the civil rights pioneer Dolores Huerta. She has fought her whole life to lift up the people who put food on our table. And she spearheaded one of the most consequential strikes and boycotts in American history. The classic slogan, Si se puede, or Yes we can, that's hers. But until recently, her work was overshadowed by Cesar Chavez, the man who co-founded the United Farm Workers with her. No man will stand taller than when you say, I was there, I marched with Cesar. In 2016, we sent some overdue credit Dolores's way with an exhibition titled One Life, Dolores Huerta. Some of the images that we discussed today are from that retrospective, and you can find them in the show notes of this episode. Today, we look back with Dolores at some of those arrows that were slung her way, from commonplace chauvinism to a police beating that nearly killed her. Through it all, she's never lost sight of the people that she's actually trying to help. And that's where we begin, in the 1950s in her native California, where Dolores was door knocking to register people to vote. She visited one home that made a particularly strong impression. I came to a home of a farm worker family. There was no covering on the floor. It was a dirt floor. Their furniture was orange crates and cardboard boxes. The children were barefoot and obviously malnutrition. Uh, so that was a big shock for me. I had known farm workers, but I had never seen the way that some of them had to live. And that really infuriated me. So uh, that's when I made that, my decision to just quit being a teacher and start organizing farm workers. So let's start sort of in the middle of your story and perhaps the one that most Americans are most familiar with, which is the Delano Grape Strike. We have a portrait in the collection uh, that shows you in profile holding a strike sign in English. It says strike by the artist George Ballas. And then there's this other wonderful picture that unfortunately we don't have in the collection, but it shows you standing up and holding the sign Huelga. You're wearing a sweater in one case and a scarf in the other, so maybe it's cold. 
tell us about the context. What are you doing in these pictures? Well, the, the one that has a kind of a shawl over my shoulders, uh, it was in the wintertime, and we had to be out there on the picket lines, and we had to get out there very early, like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, because that's when they would bring the strike breakers in to break the strike. So we had to make sure that we dressed up pretty warm, uh, because we would be out there on those picket lines from the uh, early morning until the sun went down. We used to call it from sunup to sundown, sol a sol. And so you had a dress kind of warm to be out there. So so I had this big old shawl, shawl around my shoulders. Uh, uh, the first portrait was this kind of a classic portrait uh, where I am standing up holding the sign Walga, which means strike in Spanish. That uh, picture was taken, I guess, about a week into the strike. And I remember I had kind of run out of clean clothes. And I had this one white sweater <laughs> that was all wrinkled. Uh, and But it was the only thing that I had that was clean for, to be able to put on to go out there to the picket line. And uh, I was standing on a, a, the car of one of the strikers holding up that sign because there, uh, there were strike breakers in the field. And I, was, I stood up on top of the car so that they could see me. And I remember turning one way or the other because I was conscious of my wrinkled sweater. <laughs> but <laughs> now we, we look at the picture, we know that the wrinkles were actually part of the dramatic effect of the picture. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, now that you mention it, I can actually see the wrinkles. I've never noticed that before. But also the perspective, it um, makes sense that you're standing on a car, which must have been kind of scary in of its own right to stand on a car. But you have the sort of the electric um, lines, you know, the electric cable lines that are in the sky behind you. It makes for a really dramatic picture. It was at the entrance of our exhibition and it's by Harvey Wilson Richards. Yes, that picture has been used so many, so many, many times. So tell us about the Delano grape strike from 1965 to 1970. Just in a snapshot, Dolores, why were you striking? Well, uh, the farm workers were being treated so terribly. You know, um, one of the examples of this is, of course, that the uh, women, they didn't have bathrooms in the field. And if you can imagine working out there in the hot sun and in the cold of winter, you're miles and miles away from the nearest gas station and the nearest town, and there, there isn't even a porta potty out there. And so for women, it was so embarrassing that they had to hide behind sheets. Or, you know, uh, women would gather around each other when they had to do their business or you had an audience, and uh, it was just so humiliating. And of course, for the men also. And at that time, you know, construction workers, they, they had their porta potties out there. And this was just a way to humiliate people, to make them feel that they were less than human. And when I talk to farm workers and we talk about all of the other benefits that we won, like unemployment insurance, uh, disability insurance, a good workers comp, the right to have a union, they always say to me, Dolores, don't forget the bathrooms. <laughs> I want to say too that I, I use a, uh, the bathrooms are actually as a symbol uh, in many ways, uh, unless you put something into a law that can be implemented, enforced, and where people can be held accountable, then you really didn't quite finish the job. And so we were able to get, I got bathrooms into my first contract that I signed, and then finally we passed it into a national law. And from the time that I first signed it into the first contract, the collective bargaining agreement, uh, to the time that it got passed, it took almost 20 years for it to become a national law. Wow, that speaks to the 
long haul, right, that idea of resilience that you've got to keep at it. Um, and, in fact, the, the Delano grape strike lasted five years. People weren't working. They weren't getting a wage. I mean, that's a long time, Dolores. Um, I imagine that after a couple of months you're thinking, okay, but after a year goes by and a second year goes by, tell us about just sort of people don't realise, I think, how long these things can last. Yeah, well, there was a lot of violence. Uh, you know, we had we were shot at, uh, people were beaten. Uh, it, it was very, very ugly. Uh, but the thing is that uh, we, the way that we finally were able to win, uh, after months of being on the picket lines, then uh, we started a boycott. Uh, at that point in time, they had had the uh, bus boycott in, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Then uh, they were, there was an organization called the Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, they were doing a boycott of auto dealerships in the San Francisco area. So we thought, okay, well, let's try it. So our first target for the boycott was a wine company called Shenley, and uh, they also sold liquor. So some of our young volunteers, they hitchhiked all the way back to New York City, and we started that boycott on Shenley. And uh, within weeks of the boycott, you know, the company decided to that they would sign a contract. And then we boycotted a couple of other wine companies. And uh, so then we were getting all these contracts through the boycott. And then we said, uh, boycott all the grapes. And then we were able to get all of the grape growers to come in and sign contracts. And why grapes, Dolores? Because, you know, these are the United Farm Workers. So presumably they're also picking corn and vegetables and all sorts of produce. Why focus on grapes? Well, actually, California is the largest producer of grapes in the Central Valley of California. Uh, over 90% of the grapes, uh, fresh grapes that are uh, sold in the United States come from, from California. And uh, that was uh, the target of, of our strikes to begin with. And then, of course, they have all of the wine grapes. You know, they have the fine wines. So they didn't really want any kind of a boycott. Well, we found out that if you boycott anything that has alcohol in it, it uh, makes it easier to target. You know, it's so interesting because I think it's so ingenious. If you're boycotting grapes and grapes turn into wine, it really hits people at the sort of the pleasure principle, right? People like to enjoy a glass of wine. They're willing to spend more money on the glass of wine. It's very much hits at the middle class and the upper class too. So, you know, I imagine that had you decided to boycott cabbages, it might have been a very different story, right? But grapes is kind of ingenious. In 1970, most of Delano growers agreed to pay harvesters a better wage and to contribute to a union health plan. Dolores and Cesar also successfully campaigned to ban DDT on grape and lettuce farms. But the strike's impact didn't end there. It in fact paved the way for a law that was passed five years later establishing collective bargaining for California farm workers. And that was a first in US history. On the other side of the break, Dolores, the born-again feminist. One of the areas that women can give up a little bit of time, and that is in shopping, okay? (laughs) And especially when we go out there for shopping for things that we don't even need. You know, you never saw a a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. We have to live simply so that others can simply live. 
And when we think of the kind of inheritance that we want to leave to our children or our grandchildren, think of leaving them a legacy of justice. That was Dolores Huerta from the TED stage. Dolores has sat across the table from legislators in their chambers and across from landowners in high-stakes negotiations. She's won all kinds of benefits for farm workers, such as unemployment insurance, better wages and disability safeguards. But she was often the only woman at that table, and she was actually fighting on two fronts, resisting the exploitation of farm workers and also resisting sexism. She credits Fred Ross Sr. for introducing her to the brand of grassroots organising that has underpinned her life's work. But she doesn't mince her words. She says that sometimes she encountered sexism from within the very labour movement that she helped to launch. For example, Cesar Chavez was the face of the United Farm Workers, not his female counterpart, Dolores. Let's get back to our conversation. Uh, one of the big reasons that we wanted to do the One Life exhibition was to reintroduce to certainly another group of younger Americans your role. You know, if you had a chance to do this over again, do you think you would be more assertive or did that never really play into your mind, the idea of, well, you know, I, what about me? I'm, you know, I'm working pretty hard over here. Well, uh, when we started uh, the organisation, actually Caesar asked me, would it be all right with you if I am the spokesperson for the union? And myself, I think, having been, been socialized like so many women that we are supposed to support men, <laughs> that I said, oh, it's okay, Caesar. Of course, once I met him, like everybody else, Caesar was a genius, you know, and, and people rallied behind him and, and his voice, which was also a very, very humble voice. But uh, now with my feminist lens on, they were given to me by Gloria Steinem and Eleanor Smeal. I think I would have said to Caesar, no, Caesar, let's do it half and half. Okay. But actually, the way that Fred Ross taught us is that as an organizer, your job is to empower other people, not to empower yourself. All right. Yes. And so, you know, having other people be the spokespersons for the organization, for the movement, for the work that we're doing. That, that is very natural to me. Yeah, but at the same time, seeing women being brought forward inspires other women and men, one would hope, to, to see women in those roles more often, right? That's the power of portraiture. No, I, I absolutely agree. And within the United Farm Workers, uh, you know, I had to sort of suppress uh, a lot of my feminist thoughts, so to speak, because I was uh, going into a very, very different culture uh, working with a lot of uh, farm workers who were immigrants. So at some point uh, in the union itself, I just uh, started to react uh, to the sexism that existed in the organization. And when they would ask Caesar, uh, why do you have so many women working here? And he would have women in charge of field offices, uh, in charge of our arbitrations. And he would say, because they do the work, right? <laughs> that was always his answer. But uh, we didn't have enough women on our executive board. And uh, I started really uh, trying to champion to get more women on the board. Dolores also started keeping a tally of sexist comments her colleagues made during board meetings. And at the end of the sessions, when Cesar asked if anyone had anything to add, she'd say, yes, during the course of this meeting, 
you guys made 58 sexist remarks. As she told one reporter, she just kept at it until the tally went down to 20, then to 10, and then five, and finally stopped. I'm happy to report that today, the United Farm Workers, the president is a woman, and uh, that the majority of the people on the, the board of the United Farm Workers are women to this day. So let's talk about your relationship with Gloria Steinem. You credit her with making you a feminist. You know, when asked about this question about your relationship, uh, Gloria Steinem has said that she was, in fact, a little frightened of you when she first met you. Why? Um, what was your impression of her? Why Why was she frightened of you? <laughs> you know, that, that really surprised me when I heard that because I was in awe of Gloria. <laughs> so I, I think we were in awe of each other because she was just such a powerful force and yet so humble. I mean, we had farm workers there in New York City, uh, I remember she called the limo once to take the farm workers and had them all, took them out to a really beautiful restaurant to have a really beautiful dinner. Who does that, you know? Yeah, wow. And uh, to this day, I, I am still friends with Gloria and I love her so much. And and we have this wonderful photograph in the collection where she is doing sort of the arm raised, clenched fist above her head, sort of that power gesture, standing, looking directly out of the camera next to Dorothy Pittman Hughes. It's taken by Dan Wyman in 1971. That, you know, it's really what we call that sort of that power gesture of solidarity. Tell us a little bit about Gloria Steinem and her influence on you as an activist and as a feminist. Well, I I thought I was a feminist uh, because I believed in women having power and women being in charge, like my mother, who raised us, uh, who was, uh, you know, always the, the, the decision maker in our family. And she raised my brothers uh, to do all the housework like I did. I mean, I never had to serve my brothers or cook for my brothers, iron for my brothers ever. In fact, my brothers thought I was spoiled because they said that mom did more for me than she did for them. Well, brothers will do that to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, my brothers were better cooks than I, and, you know. So I thought I was a feminist, but again, because of being a Catholic and uh, being raised with the idea that abortion is a sin. And this is where uh, Gloria, uh, you know, brought me over to uh, the position of choice and uh, respecting other people's rights to believe what they do. And then I was invited to be on the board of the Feminist Majority Foundation with Ellie Smeal. And Ellie then took me the rest of the way uh, to talk about uh, abortion being a woman's right to be able to control her own body. So uh, I thought I was a feminist, but uh, being a feminist is uh, much more than what I believed at that time. Resistance, however, can be dangerous too. In 1988, Dolores was protesting outside a fundraiser hosted by then Vice President George Bush Sr., when she was severely beaten by a San Francisco police officer. She suffered broken ribs, a ruptured spleen and serious internal bleeding. And my, my injuries were internal, so you really couldn't see uh, why, where, where I was losing the blood from. So it was a, just a miracle that I was saved. So I was very, very fortunate. Did you ever say or did others ever say to you, know, Dolores, this is getting a little out of hand because, you know, we love you, but... Is it really worth the cost of your life? Uh, that thought never entered into my mind. And I, I guess my focus has always been on making the world a better place, uh, using whatever skills I had to do that. You know, the one thing that really uh, kind of disappointed me is that some of the men 
in the organization, uh, just assumed that I had done something to bring it on myself. Wow. Somehow it was my fault that I had gotten beaten. Uh, the one thing is that since it was all recorded, they were able to identify the officer and that actually proved that I was just a part of the protest and I was not doing anything irregular or, or illegal uh, to get that beating. But there were some men in the organization that thought, well, Dolores must have brought it on herself. That must have been extraordinarily hurtful. Are there things that you might have done differently? You sort of hinted that a little bit earlier. You said, I probably would have stood up for myself a little more, taken the credit that I deserved a little more. Were there other things that you say, you know, if I, if I could have done it again, I might have done it slightly differently? Well, I think I would have tried to fight more for my children because they were deprived of all of the uh, wonderful things that I experienced as a youngster, the music lessons, the dancing lessons. Uh, I guess in exchange uh, that the experiences that they had, uh, most uh, young people would never never had that opportunity growing up in the movement, uh, being involved on picket lines and protests and marches and uh, meeting uh, famous people. Dolores's 11 children can say, however, my mum's the one who came up with the rallying cry, yes we can, or si se puede. It's a motto that was initially and incorrectly attributed to Cesar Chavez, and then it was borrowed by another well-known community organiser. A man touched down on the moon. A wall came down in Berlin. A world was connected by our own science and imagination. Yes, we can. So uh, we were doing a, a campaign uh, around Cesar Chavez's fast. Uh, he was fasting for 25 days in Arizona, a water-only fast, because they had passed a law in Arizona that if a farm worker uh, went on strike, that they could go to prison. If you said boycott anything, you could also go to prison. So we were organizing to try to overturn that law. And so as I was organizing with some of the professional Latinos, uh, they told me, you can't do anything here in Arizona. Uh, no se puede. And so my response to them was, si se puede. And when I reported uh, that conversation to the rally that we had every night there around Caesar's fasting, when I said that I told them, si se puede, People jumped up and they started clapping, saying, si se puede, yes, we can. And uh, so that became just a, a rallying cry uh, for, for that campaign. And of course, as we know, uh, President Obama used it in his campaign for the presidency. Yes, and he mentioned that pretty belatedly, again, to the point of women often getting recognition way past the time that they should have received it 20 years later. But in 2012, he awarded you the Medal of Freedom. Uh, and on a personal note, uh, Dolores was uh, very gracious uh, when I told her I had stolen her slogan, uh, Si se puede, yes we can. Uh, knowing her, uh, uh, I'm pleased that she let me off easy because uh, Dolores does not play. We're still trying to accomplish the dream that the founders of our Constitution had in the Bill of Rights. We're not there yet. And, and the great thing is that when people see that they are making history, they are exhilarated and they are joyful and they do feel that power. Um, let me put it this way. We are awakening in, in people the gift that they have, the gift that they have to make a difference. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of 
nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed the trail toward freedom. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was sung by immigrants. That was Dolores Huerta going strong at an amazing 92 years of age. But the work still goes on. Today, harvesters not only have to contend with low wages, they are increasingly at risk from heat stress and even death as climate change brings record high temperatures to the fields where they work. You can see the images we discussed and other historic photographs of Dolores in the show notes of this podcast or on our website at npg.si.edu slash podcasts. This episode was produced by Ruth Morris. Our podcast team includes Justin O'Neill, Anne Kinnanen, Deborah Sism and Rebecca K. Smyer. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder and Joe Kai, and Tarek Fuda is our engineer. And it was Will I Am who put Obama's campaign speech to music. Until next time, I'm your host, Kim Sayette.